by, by helping get these markets for real estate loans going again, for helping provide financing to get the securities markets going again, you're going to make it more likely that these guys are able to clean up their balance sheets and raise private equity again. I, I, it'll come. Thinking of a master plan. Cause ain't nothing but sweat inside my hand So I dig into my pocket, all my money spent So I should deep up, still coming up with lint So I stop Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Monday, March 23rd, and we have a very special guest host. Hi, David. Caitlin Kenny. Hey, what happened to Laura and Alex and Adam up there in New York? Eh, I locked them in the broom closet. But anyway, we have a lot to get to today, so let's get started. Okay. That was Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner you just heard at the top of the podcast. This morning, he unveiled that long-awaited plan. We've been waiting to hear the details about what they plan to do with the toxic assets. And that brings us to our Planet Money indicator. It's 93 cents. That is the fraction of every dollar spent as part of this toxic asset plan that the taxpayer could be on the hook for, at least for part of the plan. So 93 cents out of every dollar. Sounds like a lot. It, it does. And, uh, you know, I think your typical news report would probably just leave it at that. But we here at Planet Money are going to take a few minutes to actually lay the thing out and explain the plan and how it works. So you listeners can decide for yourself what you think of it. And we're going to do it, of course, in true Planet Money style with a little bit of radio theater. All right. So first, we need a little bit of background. Um, this is the big plan we have been waiting to hear the details of. It's a variation on what the Bush administration initially planned on doing, buying up the actual toxic assets that are clogging the financial system. Yeah, these things are messy. They're mortgage-backed securities. They're very complicated. They're deteriorating and losing their value. But the banks are just stuck with them. There's no one out there to buy them right now. But the banks want to get clean, so they have to figure out what to do. Right. So the, the plan announced today is that the government, working with the help of some hopefully brilliant private investors is looking to buy maybe $500 billion, maybe up to a trillion dollars worth of these troubled assets. Hey, David. Yep. Last time I had to be the subprime borrower. Can I be <laughs> the brilliant investor this time? Yeah, sure. Okay. You, you can be the brilliant investor. I will play the part of the bank with the toxic asset. And so I really want to sell this toxic asset. So no one has to guess whether I'm insolvent anymore. I just want to you know, have clean books. I want to get it off my hands. So uh, the way this would work is that we would have an auction. Okay. So I've looked in detail at that asset, and I'm going to offer you mm, 60 bucks for it. 60 bucks? No way. Look, hey, Caitlin, this is a great toxic asset. I mean, I know it's it's a pool of mortgage loans, which mm-hmm. have a bad reputation. Some of them are from Florida. But look, I'm telling you, it is worth what I paid for it. It is worth $100. All right. I'll give you 65 Sick. I, I got a family to feed. Okay, fine. 70 84 All right. All right. You got me. We'll make a deal. Okay. So uh, we should point out here that actually there would be multiple people bidding, but we're a little short-staffed. Yeah, it's true. It's basically just us. Yep. Hey, but will you stop being the bank for a second? I have a problem. I just looked at my wallet, and I don't have $84. I really have six. (laughs) Uh, Well, if you're in the grocery store, that would be a problem. But it turns out that is just fine because the government is going to kick in some money. It's going to kick in six bucks. So that's the public-private partnership thing. You, Caitlin, private investor, put in six bucks. The government puts in six bucks. Now the two of you together have a little investment firm with $12, $12 of capital. I think your math is a little fuzzy here. 
Doesn't that toxic <laughs> asset cost $84? It, it does, but there's something else I haven't told you, which is that there's more good news for you. The government is going to help you get a loan for the rest of the money. So, in fact, what it's going to do is guarantee the loan. Wow, that's a sweet deal. It is. It's a really good deal. All right, so let's run through how this looks from everyone's perspective. Right. From my perspective as an investor, I'm actually pretty happy. I only had to put up about 6 bucks, and because I'm part of a public-private partnership, I get half the profits. So as they say, I'm leveraged. Yeah. Yahoo! Lucky you, right? <laughs> Woohoo! Right, um, and as the bank, for me, uh, you know, I may be happy, maybe not. That was a tough bidding war, but at least I got the things off my books. So what about the taxpayers? Right. What about the taxpayers? So... That depends, because if you, Caitlin, the genius private investor, actually negotiated a good price, and you have every reason to fight hard for a good price because you put your own uh, $6 in, right? Um, If you bought the toxic asset for a good price, then the public-private fund might actually make money, and you, Caitlin, would get half the profit, and the government, the taxpayers, would also get half the profit. But there's a problem here. If this toxic asset turns out to be more toxic than I thought, then I could actually lose my money. Right. So you could lose the $6 you put in. The government could lose the $6 it put in. And then if the toxic asset loses more than the 6 plus 6, $12, then it starts, the losses start to eat into the loan that the government guaranteed. And, and then the taxpayer ends up on the hook, right? Right, right. So the taxpayer would then be on the hook for, for the loan part of it. So that is why, theoretically, the government and the taxpayer is on the hook for quite a bit of money. Um, I need to say here that the program is a little bit more complicated than we laid out here. But the, the numbers we used actually come from a Treasury document that they handed out this morning. And, you know, so th- these are real numbers here. But they only apply to part of the program. It's a part that deals with buying up pools of loans. There's a second part of the program that deals with buying up pools of uh, what you would think of more as toxic assets, uh, complicated mortgage-backed securities. And that part hasn't been totally fleshed out. We don't know how big the loans would be for that part. But but this is basically, this is the general idea of how it would work. Right. But of course, we always want to get as detailed as we can here at Planet Money. So to get a little more into the mechanics, we called up David Byam. He's a former investment banker and a professor at the Columbia Business School. The government is going to try and help purchase billion worth of toxic assets. Now, we've heard that the total amount of toxic assets out there could be $12 trillion. Well, that's maybe a little high. (laughs) That may be a little high. Okay, but is this enough? Are they buying enough to make a difference? Well, they did say 500 that could be expanded to a trillion. And there's a spectrum of assets. There certainly are lots of financial assets out there. Uh, there's more than $12 trillion of assets of various types. How bad is bad? I mean, if you, if, if you bought off the bottom $2 trillion worst, you would certainly clean up the majority of the problem. Okay, the, the, what's impacting the system is not the ones further up the quality scale, but the ones at the very bottom of the quality scale. So that leads me to question two, though, which is if you read the documentation, it says that they are going to be buying... Uh, things that were originally rated triple A. So that would mean the stuff that initially, at least, was regarded uh, as pretty rock solid. It's That's true, yeah. So are they buying the right so stuff? Well, they're not buying from the bottom. I think what that reflects, uh, if you say, where's the problem? The problem is at the bottom. 
If you say, where can they reasonably start buying, the answer is, I think they have to start buying with the top of the toxic spectrum, which I think may be, you know, a couple trillion dollars up, uh, you know, at the scale that I was just describing. So they do have to start not only with the triple A's, but I think if you are, if you look at it this way, the... The, spread, the problem of pricing is a problem of information. So people who want to sell the assets are unwilling, them to sell, unwilling to sell them below a certain point, and people who are willing to buy them are unwilling to buy them above a certain point. And there's been a very wide gap between what people felt like selling them for and what people felt like buying them for. That's a classic economics problem that comes from poor information. And the better information we have, the more you're going to close that gap. Now, with the higher quality end of the spectrum, you've got better information. And I think you will have people more willing to reach an accommodation with each other. So as you start nibbling away at this mountain of bad stuff, the end to start nibbling on is the high end. And by better information, you mean that once these things start selling, we'll have a sense that it's not just me who thinks it's worth 60 cents on the dollar. It's actually a lot of people, and then we'll have a better, more confident, we'll have more confidence in the marketplace as to what these things are actually worth. That's right. Now, there are many, many different species and varieties and types and versions of these assets. And so critical to getting a market going is some way of describing what's in them, some organized data sheet that says, here's what's in this one. Here's how good or bad it is. Um, you know, here's, it, you have to have some guidance to help you price it. You can't just sell people a, a black box and say, make me a bid. You've got to give them as much detail as you can reasonably assemble on what's actually in it. And um, that's hard to do. I mean, if you're talking about thousands of home mortgages, it, you can't go into the detail of each borrower. But what you can show is default history. You can show whether people in this particular stack of mortgages have been paying or not paying, how much they've been paying, how much they're behind, and so forth. So you could kind of rank them in quality. You don't even have to talk to or don't want to talk to the rating agencies. You can look and see what the actual payment experience has been in this particular set. Isn't if you that rank those all against each other, you'll have a scale of quality. Isn't that information already available right now? And if it is, why aren't people buying and selling? Well, I think it it probably could be put together now. I don't know that it's publicly available. I don't know that anyone looks at it or talks about it because there hasn't really been a market for these. However, I think as part of a government program, one will want to put together that kind of a data sheet and then start selling from the top of the stack where the payments have been the most regular. The more nearly regular the payments are, the closer the bond should be to par and the more comfortable everybody should feel with it. So... Here's another thing I've been puzzling over. What if the government decide, you know, puts this thing together, uh, people bid to buy the toxic assets, and you know, the banks, whoever own it, are only willing to part with it for $0.80, cents, and the people who are willing to buy it say it's only worth $0.40, cents, and we're stuck. They don't, they don't meet in the middle. Isn't, well, is that, that a possibility? That certainly is a possibility. That's more than a possibility. That's a, a probability for many of the assets. That's why you have to be very selective about which ones you start the program with. I don't expect this program to start off with a huge bang. I think it will definitely get support. I think there will definitely be firms that signed up for the role of fund manager. Uh, BlackRock, PIMCO, others have already volunteered for that role, and I suspect they will be among the five or so that Treasury says they want to pick. So that structure will be set up, and then the people who manage that structure will have to go about um, examining some of the assets from people who are at least 
potentially willing to sell. I mean, they'd have to go around to probably um, – they'd probably go first to the securities firms, I think, the Goldman Sachs's and Morgan Stanley's, because those firms, under the accounting rules, have had to mark to market already and take their losses already. Many of the banks have been shielded from having to mark their assets to market so that selling would involve a, um, a, a, a write-off of the assets. Uh, it, the, do you see what I mean? The, the banks have not been forced to mark down most of these assets. The securities companies have. So, so the banks, if, I, if I'm a bank and I own one of these toxic assets and uh, I have it marked on my books at 90 cents on the dollar, I may not want to sell it because that might reveal that, in the, that, that it, everyone else seems to think it's worth 60 cents and that would be very bad for me on my financial statements. Well, that's one scenario. But another scenario is that you are a securities company and you observe that – um, the securities are being quoted at 60 cents on the dollar, and so your accountants tell you you better mark them down to where the security is being quoted. And you say it's not really a very good market, and the accountants say, well, but it's the only quotation we have to go by, so you better mark them down to that. And so some of the losses that have been taken at the securities companies have been of that nature. They've been mark-to-market losses on existing inventory. So I think that anyone who has already marked all the way down to 60 is more likely to be able to sell at 60 because they've already taken the loss. Do you think some people are saying that the government and we as taxpayers actually stand to make money off our investment here? Is that realistic, do you think, or is that kind of like a side point to the bigger issue of just getting these assets off the books? It's a side point. It's a side point. I think it would be remarkable if the government did make money on it. Uh, basically, their primary role here is to is to offer very cheap financing, and it's hard to make much money when you're offering you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of very cheap financing. So, but I don't think that's their purpose. I think they would like to do the best thing for the country. And so they don't want to give money away that they don't have to. uh, But they are really having to throw a lot of money at this problem in order to make any progress at all. And they've shown a willingness to do that. But I do think it's for the good of the country that they're trying. This is the best plan yet that I've seen in the toxic assets area. This is a great deal superior to what Secretary Paulson came up with last fall. This is much more detailed, much more thoughtful, much more focused on a few firms that will be managing the process who are themselves really expert in in, uh, this type of asset. Do you think for the private investors they're going to make the bang back for their buck, or are they kind of doing it also as a, a gesture of goodwill and a general effort to help the economy? Well, there's two categories that you have to think about. One is the firms that are stepping up volunteering to be fund managers. So I mentioned BlackRock and PIMCO before. Both of those firms are well-known for having offered their services to the government in this connection, and I think they do that for reputational reasons. My guess is they'll probably make some money doing it, but they'd make more money if they just got back to the business they had before the collapse. Um, I think they're really doing it out of a sense of reputation. They would like to be seen as expert in this area. They'd like to be seen as problem solvers and good guys who help the country get through this problem. Uh, That's reputationally valuable for them. And they will make some money, too, but I wouldn't worry about them running off with the crown jewels. The other question is, what about the buyers? And the buyers should make a lot of money. We've got to get clear on that. If you invite the private sector to come in and start a market here, they're going to do it in the expectation of high returns because they're going to be asked to take some risk in a pretty tough environment, and people who take risk in tough environments should be entitled to make some money. I think one of the biggest concerns I have about the program is whether it doesn't uh, run into a problem of succeeding and then a public backlash against the people who have been making a lot of money. 
So there's certainly a lot of public resentment against bailout generally these days, and certainly hedge funds, who would be one of the main categories here, don't have a lot of sympathizers out there, uh, though they didn't bring us the crisis, uh, but they did earn a lot of money themselves, and so they're part of the general resentment. You know, I think it would be unfortunate if that kind of resentment got in the way. And, in fact, a number of potential participants have been pausing before signing up to say, you know, would we now face this great public backlash? Would we have some angry posse coming to attack our corporate headquarters? Uh, Maybe we don't want to get involved. Or would they change the rules retroactively in some terribly damaging way that we couldn't control? Is this a good plan for the taxpayers? I think it's a good plan for the country. I really think that we've got to do something about these assets. You can't just let them sit there festering. They will, they will impact our banking system for a decade if you do. That's what happened in Japan. The banking system just choked up and was impacted for a decade by the bad loans they had in Japan, and, and they were allowed to just sit there festering, and new ones were generated and not cleaned up, and it messed up their banking system for a decade and seriously damaged their economic growth. So I do think the government is right to try and discover some kind of a market for these, for these assets. That was David Beim, a former investment banker and a professor at the Columbia Business School. So this plan is a big deal for Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner and for the Obama administration because they've been battling criticism that what they've done so far hasn't, hasn't been good enough and hasn't gone far enough, hasn't been fast enough. So they, it'd be really nice for them if this worked. Yeah, Geithner especially has been really taking the heat. One of our listeners actually sent us a Geithner-related Planet Money indicator. What was it? 53, as in the number of days from Geithner being sworn in on January 26 and being described as embattled by the Financial Times. That was on March 20th. Wow, yeah, he does have he does have a tough job. 53 days from being uh from being uh, approved to being embattled. Yeah, well, I mean, he's only the man charged with saving the whole global economy. It's not that True. bad. True. All right. So speaking of politics, we wanted to get an idea of how this plan is playing out on Capitol Hill. So we called up Sean West. He is a U.S. policy analyst at the Eurasia Group, and we asked him what he thought of the announcement. Well, I think the administration is presenting a lot more detail than they had, which is which is a good thing, I think, all around. Uh, for taxpayers, they get to understand what the administration plans to do with their money for Wall Street. They get a bit more information about the types of choices that lie ahead and the environment that they'll be operating in. But in reality, um, there's still there's still a lot of questions within the plan itself. And sort of from our perspective, the biggest question is, can the administration politically accomplish what it has set out to do in this toxic asset plan? Not um, are the mechanics of this plan correct and will they work, but, but politically, the plan calls for massive taxpayer subsidy of, of the risk that private funds will take, and especially in light of the back, backlash over AIG, questions of the credibility of the administration um, on, on use of taxpayer dollars related to the TARP. You know, can, can they actually accomplish that? Can they get away with it? And what can Congress do to actually um, make this situation a whole lot more risky? It seems like the way they set it up actually it was intentionally so that they don't have to go to Congress to ask for more money. You know, the uh, the loans for this come from either the FDIC or the Fed, which, you know, can create money out of thin air. So it seems like they structured this exactly so they would not have to go ask Congress for more money, at least not right now. 
Yeah, that's been that's been the way that that the Bush administration, which originally had TARP and and the Obama administration, has been approaching it. It's a vehicle to lever up the money that Congress has approved for them to spend um, through other vehicles, so that they don't have to ask for more money. Um, this this clearly is still a risk to the taxpayer, even though it is not directly approved funds by Congress. The, the downside will be borne by the taxpayer if it exists. Um, and, you know, in, in fact, the, the plan that was released this morning basically exhausts the existing TARP, but leaves the door open for the plan size to double from $500 billion to a $1 trillion, which necessarily implies going back to Congress to ask for more money. If, if they went to Congress right now and said, we need another $400 billion, do you think they could get it? I, it, it would be a disaster, and it would be a painful fight, and it would require the administration to agree to a whole bunch of restrictions that, A, it doesn't want to agree to, and, B, could could drive away um, market participants from partaking in the plan. Congress would need to extract its pound of flesh to approve even a single dollar more, and even absent a request for further money, uh, there, there are plenty of ways that Congress can make this painful for the administration. So it's not the, the real fight certainly will come when the administration needs more money. Um, but there, but there are plenty of fights before that that could also um, occur. Uh, Republicans have been pressing for Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner to uh, to actually resign. Do you think is he really in danger of losing his job? The the risk is low. Uh, the the Obama administration went out of its way to to bend its ethical rules to push Geithner through under the pretense that Geithner was the only person who could solve this financial crisis. So that's, that's sort of one angle that that's just, that would just be a real blow to the administration on that ground, because it's an admission that Obama picked the wrong person. But in, in purely logistical sense, you know, w- one of my friends who, who is in meetings at Treasury said it's a ghost town right now. There just, aren't, there just isn't staff there. So if you, if you were to effectively chop off the head, um, they and then have to wait through another Senate confirmation process to bring in a new Treasury Secretary, all of the progress that the administration has accomplished in the last two months and all of sort of the momentum, the limited momentum that it's gained. I mean, it's arguable how much of it exists, but that momentum is stopped in its tracks and everything is thrown into question. You know, uh, here in Washington, though, right, we're both in Washington. uh, You're never more scared than when someone stands up and says, I have every confidence in so-and-so because... That means you're in trouble. You know, often two weeks later, that person has decided to spend more time with their family or something. Um, Obama did step up and said, you know, if Geithner wanted to resign, he would tell him, quote, sorry, buddy, you've still got the job. So it sounds like he's doing more than just saying I have confidence in him. He's saying this guy's going to stay. I don't think they have a plan B if they don't have Geithner. I think when, when the situation gets sufficiently bad for Geithner, when Geithner becomes a real liability, which is unclear that he is, uh, particularly, you know, the market's rallying on this toxic asset plan. It's, it's unclear that, that he's going to be personally a huge liability, but then he fades to the back. He doesn't go away. In terms of how Geithner's done so far at the forefront and being that public face, how would you rate him um, coming forward and announcing new plans for Treasury? Do you think he's done a good job, or has he been perceived as weak and maybe not as capable as the Obama administration presented him to be? There's, there's probably an underestimation of his capability. I mean, this is, this is such a complex problem that it, it seems almost unfair to fault someone for not having the answer eight weeks 
into the administration. However, the, the sort of big disaster is when the administration doesn't adequately manage expectations. So February 10th, Geithner gave a speech. Obama had said, Geithner will present all these details that you want. Then he didn't do it. Then Geithner looks weak, and he looks bad, and every, and every news channel focuses on how timid he looks when he presents on television. And that story sort of becomes the accepted wisdom about him. Now, the, the toxic asset release plan that was unveiled this morning is, is sort of pro- probably something that will bolster his credibility with the market, because the, the worst thing that can happen to Geithner is for Wall Street to have no confidence in him and for the taxpayer to be mad that he's channeling a whole lot of money to Wall Street. Um, so in some sense, he made his choice today by presenting a plan that provides a massive taxpayer subsidy to Wall Street, and the market likes it. The market definitely likes it today. The Dow closed up nearly 7%. Wow, that's pretty good. We also have some more great news here. It's not economic news, but it is wonderful nonetheless. Hannah Jaffe-Walt, one of our favorite reporters here at Planet Money, is going to be working with us a whole lot more. Yeah, full-time, actually. So you may remember her coverage of the uh, ball-bearing crisis. <laughs> sure. These are they, no. These were. This is a great story. These were huge ball bearings that were being used to uh, to construct this new huge uh, Airbus airplane. And it turned out uh, the guy who was building the piece of machinery to build the planes could not get the ball bearings because it turned out the Chinese were using them for wind power turbines. So she's just a lot of great stories like that. Yeah. My favorite story is the one where she went around with her own postal carrier who had a really interesting perspective on the recession. And she talked about seeing red and yellow envelopes, signs that people's bills were late and just sort of feeling the economic crisis from that perspective. And I also learned that mail carriers sometimes read the postcards and stuff. Yes, I think the mail carrier said, yes, we always read them. And now Hannah Jaffe-Walt is on a special mission which required a globe. I talked to her about it. Hey, Hannah. Hey, David. So do you really have a globe out there in Seattle with you? I do. And she's a beauty. She's sitting on a big wooden stand right here next to me. All right. And what are we going to be doing with the globe? Okay, so, you know, we've been putting together this big story on the blame game, and um, you, along with lots of other people, have been asking people to point fingers to tell us who to blame for this economic crisis. I've been wondering if other people are as grumpy as we are. Like, are people in China and Finland and Azerbaijan, are they all really pissed off about the economy, too? Right, and who do they blame? Right. Um, And, you know, that we have this way of telling the story of the economic collapse. We have an idea of sort of the narrative of how we got here and who got us here. But I was wondering if other people in Mali or Panama, do they have the same story and the same villains? Who do they blame? Uh, I think I know. I think they blame this small country called um, the United States of America. (laughs) I'm guessing that's probably the answer in a lot of places. But, you know, maybe there are places where people don't blame anyone. Maybe they're not mad or they're mad in a really different way than we are. I mean, like maybe they picked, picked some other country that they hate and tried to tag it on them. Yeah, maybe it's not us. I would love to hear that. Okay, so we're starting to call around, and there's a couple obvious places, China and Iceland, and we're asking people there who they blame. Um, But then I thought there's all these other countries that we never hear from. We never hear about their economic news, and I thought they should have a fair chance of getting their story out there, too. And this is where the globe comes in. It is. So we are going to choose a country at random right now with my globe and my finger, are you ready? I, I am ready. Are you going to close your eyes? Oh, I could. You want me to close my eyes? Yeah. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to 
land on the United States because the United States occupies most of the globe, doesn't it? <laughs> on this globe, actually, the Soviet Union occupies quite a bit of it. <laughs> All right, well, let's see how it goes. Go ahead. And we got the Soviet Union. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> All right, David. You got the Pacific Egypt. Ocean. Egypt. No, I got Egypt. I got a real country. Egypt. All right. All so right. what, what's what the, is uh, happening in the economy of Egypt, and who are they blaming right now? Yeah, and what is the international calling code for Egypt? Right. We have <laughs> a lot to learn. Out. Okay. We do. Thanks, Hannah. We'll have that story for you on Wednesday. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your tales of international recession anger. You can add them to our blog, npr.org slash money. You can also send us your economic indicators and photos by emailing us at planetmoney at npr.org. Uh, Caitlin, I think that does it for us today. Could you please let Adam and Alex out of the boom closet now? Okay. I guess we could use their help on Wednesday. I'm Caitlin Kenny, and I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. I don't like to dream about getting paid, so I dig into the books of the rhymes that I made. So now to test to see if I got pulled, hit the studio, cause I'm paid in full. Akim, check this out. Yo, you go to your girl's house and I go to mine, cause my girl is definitely mad cause it took us too long to do this album. Yo, I hear what you're saying, so let's just pump the music up.